tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Committee Cats Podcast. I'm your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. And today we are doing part two of our webinar that we recorded a few months ago with the team at Neighborhood Cats called Mobilizing the Community to Make TNR Happen. And this is part two. So if you missed part one, I recommend you go back and listen to the first half from last week. Uh, Subscribe to the show so you get the reminders on both of these sessions. And you can also tune in to our YouTube page and you can watch the webinar there. But if you're driving along, the podcast is a great way to listen in. And this is called Mobilizing the Community to Make TNR Happen, part two. Enjoy the show and happy summer, everyone. When we approached animal control, we're looking looking for ways to get other agencies involved at this point and bring in more resources. But we're not going to them with a sense of entitlement and we're not saying you need to be offering 3,000 more surgeries a year. That's not going to get you very far. You have to let organizations move at the pace that they're comfortable with and just realize that things can accelerate once they get involved and they start to feel comfortable with what they're doing. So with animal control, they can provide support for official approval. So getting protein our ordinances or removing laws that are negatively impacting your work, like that cats are not allowed to roam or everybody has to have a license, things like that. They can also just have their own internal policies. And if they see ear-tipped cats, they leave them alone instead of trapping them, things like that. They can also refer complaints about cats and inquiries to your organization or to other TNR organizations to deal with. One of the ways that Animal Control in New York City first got involved with us was what we call ear-tipped cat alerts. So they would let us know when an ear-tipped cat was brought to the shelter and give us the general location. And then we could either try to find the caretaker or you know release the cat back to where they came from, assuming they were healthy. They also are a great source of data because often animal control is operating open admission shelters. So their intake will fluctuate according to the cat population. And then you can also do joint projects. And that's what you see in this slide. This was a joint project that neighborhood cats performed with animal care centers of New York City in a park where they'd been getting a lot of complaints and next to a golf course. And I think we fixed about 30 cats or so in a matter of a few days. So this is them helping us do TNR, not trapping the cats to take them away. When you do pilot projects, just be careful when you select your sites. There is a tendency sometimes to go for the most difficult areas in your community. You know, So those 50 cats, they're all black. They live behind the railroad station and in the woods and only come out in the middle of the night. And you've been dying to get the resources to go address that situation. That's not the colony you want to choose for a pilot. Right, it's too difficult. You you want to hedge your bets. It's all of it's difficult. So you want to pick one that's less difficult. So one where there's a strong caretaker, where the cats are on a regular feeding pattern, and they appear in the morning or at a time of day that isn't incredibly it. And you want to make sure that the resources that are being put into the pilot are enough to get that colony as close to 100% fixed as you can. Again, keeping in mind that success breeds success. So you want to make sure this pilot works. Prioritizing government agencies is another tactic that we use that's we were expanding throughout New York City. You're going to find there's a lot of government agencies that manage land that have cats on them. And here's some examples of agencies we worked with. Uh, this gentleman worked at the Fresh Kills Landfill for the sanitation department. And uh, we worked at, obviously, parks is a big one, but transportation, they often have big yards, bus depots, things like that. Worked with the uh, New York City Police Department at their pistol firing range, Department of Corrections, jails often have a lot of cats, and then fire departments at their stations, they'll, they'll often have smaller colonies. And what you do by working and prioritizing government agencies is you're building both municipal support and acceptance for TNR as a solution. And it starts to get into the government's culture that you have a solution and this is the way to uh, handle it. So in addition to working with government agencies, now we're branching off from the, we had our model neighborhood. We're not 
always doing model neighborhoods now. I want to emphasize that. We're also looking for strategic opportunities to spread TNR throughout the community. And that's where working with government agencies comes in. That's where doing pilot projects comes in. You may not be working a whole neighborhood, but you're doing something that is um, influential in addition to the data that you've generated by targeting that original area, the Upper West Side. We also sought out what we call high-profile projects, and they are what we would call media magnets. And they're just things that the local press is going to be inherently interested in because they make for a good story. And what you see in the slide here is trapping that was taking place on Rikers Island in New York City. And Rikers Island is the largest jail in the country. It's an island in the East River of uh, about 440 acres and 11 different jail facilities. There were about 300 free-roaming cats that lived there. There had been efforts in the past to eradicate them, uh, and those had failed. And there was some bad press about some kittens getting killed, and the corrections department was kind of under fire for you know not being humane to the animals. So we came in and talked to them about trap new return, and they were very receptive to it. So over the course of several months, we spent a fair amount of time in the jail, <laughs> I say on the jail grounds, running around trapping all these cats. And then we had a on the final day, well, there were a couple of things that came of this that were really good. One was it was one of the first real collaborations among New York City animal welfare groups. So you'll often find in high euthanasia communities, there's a lot of divisiveness among the different animal groups. One blaming the other, you know, everybody thinks animal control is evil and killing the cats. And there's a lack of recognition that, hey, we're all working together and this is one system. And if it's not going well, it's all of our responsibility. So this Rikers Island project, we were able to get uh, one agency, the ASPCA, donated their mobile spay-neuter van to come onto the island. So did uh, Animal Care Centers of New York City. The Maid Side of New York offered extra veterinary care. We had lots of other TNR groups that were just starting up come in and we would train them on the island. And so it became a real great collaboration and started an era where animal welfare groups in New York City started in collaboration instead of in isolation. Also, the media loved it because this was kind of a reversal of the normal situation. So it was the people who were in the cages and the cats who were running free. So it got all sorts of press locally and nationally. And the Cat Fancy magazine had a spread about Rikers Island and it got onto lots of news shows and TV and things like that. And the end result was that's when TNR really exploded in New York City. And it was no longer just a kind of word of mouth thing, but it was known all over. And that really ratcheted up the demand for TNR services. So of course, at that point, um, things were way beyond what we as a small nonprofit could handle ourselves. And we had to start thinking like, how can we grow? How does the community in our program grow? And we're not the ones running around doing trapping. And that's when we started teaching workshops. I talked before about how when you start to work with other agencies, you don't try to get everything at once. You get what they're comfortable offering. And in the very beginning, the ASPCA gave us their boardroom for training workshops. And this was a great advantage because had the A's cachet, it was a nice, comfortable space. It was centrally located. Once they saw we were not all crazy, they you know gradually start to work with us more and more. And then that accelerated to the point where even to this day, they offer spay-neuter for feral and community cats at no cost. So the partnership really grew, but we were patient in the beginning. So what these grassroots training workshops allowed was to get other people to do what we were doing, people who wanted to, but to save them all the time and effort, the two, three years that we had spent learning how to do this, we could teach them in a couple of hours, in a few hours, and they would walk away with that knowledge and a good head start and go back into their communities and start to do the same thing. And actually, what you're seeing here is a slide of the very first training workshop that we offered in New York City. And I can now look back at that and count four or five nonprofits that came out of this very first workshop. That's what we found was in the beginning, the people who attended were the most motivated ones who really had a passion for this work. And then they went back and started their own groups and their own programs. And what you can do at these workshops is teach basic TNR protocols, you know, about trapping and handling the cats. Also, really important is how to access local services. So once 
you know, spay neuter was available on a wider scale, how did the providers want you to schedule appointments? What kind of paperwork did they want to fill out? What kind of requirements were there? So when people went to interface with providers, it was a much smoother, everybody knew what to do. So it was just easier on everybody. And then we turned these into what we called certification workshops, which meant that the people who attended were trained, that we would certify that they had attended and they had learned the basics of doing this work safely. And that became an entry point into a network of different TNR services. We talked about how the training workshop is a gateway to services. I want to quickly just go over what the flowchart looks like in New York City. Again, this is maybe not necessarily what you would do in your community. Again, each community is a little unique, but this is just to show you how we do it. So you know, step number one in the process is just outreach. It's just making the community aware that services are available and education is available. So people then contact your TNR program through whatever means, then they attend the training. And once they've attended the training, and this is where the grassroots part comes in, okay? It's not you going out and doing the trapping and you doing all the work. You're trying to mobilize the public as much as possible to do this. So once they've been trained, they're responsible for scheduling the spay-neuter and arranging to borrow the necessary equipment. They'll do the trapping, maybe with some support. We'll talk about that. They're responsible for bringing the cats to and from surgery and caring for them afterwards. And then also that resident is going to do the release. In an ideal situation, when you're working on a grassroots mobilization model, you're getting the word out there that there's education available, that there are services available. People are coming to you. They're getting trained how to trap safely, how to access all the services, and then they do everything themselves, right? That's your ideal client. They may call up for a little bit of advice or where to find some services, but basically they're going to do the great bulk of the actual work. And then that allows you as a smaller nonprofit to leverage your experience and resources and have many, many more people doing this. So the true sign of success of this particular model, and let me harken back to the beginning, when your ideal community TNR program, this isn't the only thing that's going on. You are also targeting areas, you're doing return to field through the shelter, but you're also getting the public involved because you can't possibly be everywhere at once. So when you have people coming into your program, like they work at a factory or they just moved into a new house and there's several cats in the backyard and they come in and they go through the program and they do their colony and then they never touch the animal welfare system again, that's actually the sign of success. Okay, You're not trying to generate other nonprofits. You're not trying to generate prolific trappers. Those people will come to you, but they have a unique passion for this work or a unique mission and they'll go on to do a lot more. But if you get just everyday, ordinary residents coming in, fixing their cats, and then they're done, that's actually a sign of success. So let's go into these steps in a little bit more detail. So outreach is probably the easiest part of this process, which is you're going to get people calling, you know, you can have a hotline, a voicemail, you can get those pretty cheaply now for like, I don't know, maybe $8 a month. People can leave you messages. Obviously, you have a website where people can email you. Social media is a great way to get the word out. Uh, having other people who are in the animal welfare community in your area, referring people to you when they call about cats. In New York City, we had a company donated ad space in malls and things like that. And the thing to notice about these ads is they're not saying, you got cats, we're going to come and do everything for you. They're saying, you have cats and we can teach you how to do it yourself and make it possible for you to access the services you need. So once these requests start coming in, I think it's really helpful because at a certain point, again, we're going back to there's going to be a lot more demand than you can possibly handle yourself. So it's really helpful, we found, to prioritize and sort of categorize the requests and then prioritize them. So number one and, and again, this is about grassroots mobilization, getting the public involved. The people you want to prioritize the top of the list are the ones that are willing and able to do the work. They just need to be shown how. They don't know how to trap. They don't know where to bring the cats to get fixed, but they're willing to do it and they're physically able to do it. That's the low-hanging fruit. 
And that's where you want to concentrate in the beginning, especially if you're at the beginning of doing this type of campaign. Then you have people who are willing to do it. They really want to, but they're not able to. Maybe people who are elderly and have trouble lifting heavy weights or they're disabled. In the very beginning, you may not be able to help very many of them. If your program is growing and you're near the start, there's a tendency to prioritize these people over category number one. And that's a mistake when you're trying to mobilize the public because mobilizing the public means that people who can do it are doing it and you're making that possible. And if you're spending your time on people who can't do it, you're going to limit your impact. Remember, we have to think strategically on a community scale. It's not about a lack of compassion because it's the same number of cats. You have X number of surgeries and it's about how do you allocate them. And if you do it strategically in the long run, you're going to have much more impact and you're going to reach a lot more cats. Then there's a third category, which is people who are physically able to do it, but they're just not willing to. And this may be the majority of your community. You know, they could, but they don't want to take the time to do it, or it's just not important enough to them, or whatever it might be. So they're at the bottom of your list. You should still keep track of them because your program will likely at some point develop to where you'll have enough volunteers and you'll be able to just go do it as long as they're, you know, gonna cooperate with withholding food and things like that. You may be targeting an area that they live in. You know, when we talk about targeting in a separate webinar, you have to go for the cats, no matter what the people are like or what their attitudes are, you have to get every cat you can get your hands on, whether people help you or not. So having that information is good. But another alternative is think about offering a paid service. We found that sometimes people did not want to do it, but they were perfectly happy to pay us to so we would charge them the cost of the uh, spay-neuter fee, a little bit for our time. Then they would kind of go up the list. But really, the takeaway is that it's that category number one that you really want. Then you're getting them to come to these training workshops that we talked about. We talked about what you can teach them. You want them to walk away with knowing how to what colony-level targeting is and the importance of getting as close to 100% in their group of cats as they can. And uh, mass trapping, which is the technique for trapping the whole colony at one time. And you can teach them about neighbor relations, how to smooth things over, if there's any problems with the neighbors. One of the great things about workshops is you can set the standards. So testing used to be way back when in the 1990s, before Neighborhood Cats was formed, a lot of TNR programs would FIV and FELV test the cats coming through the program. And if they tested positive, they would euthanize them. That has fortunately since uh, become quite the rarity, and the vast majority of programs do not test and would not euthanize the cats even if they did test positive. But back then, when we were starting, we taught everybody in New York City, you don't test. So it wasn't an issue. So you get to set the standards for your community through these trainings. And again, you're teaching people how to access your service providers. So certification, the point of that is that if you have a network of service providers who are all buying into this, like the spay-neuter clinics and groups that are running trap banks or other groups that are offering TNR assistance in terms of trapping and things like that, if everybody makes their services or most providers make their services contingent upon this training, you're going to find that you have a more smoothly running system. So I'll give you a concrete example. When the ASPCA started to offer free spay-neuter for feral cats on their mobile clinics, they didn't require any type of training or any type of certification. So people would book the vans, which maybe say had a capacity to do 20 cats, and they would, you know, so they'd book the whole van and then they'd show up on the spay-neuter day with nine cats. And there's nothing a clinic hates worse than unused slots because it costs them the same. They, they're, they're paying the veterinarians for the day. They're paying the vet techs for the day whether they do nine cats or they do 20 cats. So it's a complete waste of resources in their mind and kept happening. Then they started to require anyone who wanted to schedule appointments with them to be certified. And the success rate, the percentage rate went way up. So if a bad day might be they'd show up with 16 cats or 17 cats instead of 20, most of the time the vans would be filled. So it makes for a much more efficient system if people know what they're doing. So you make things like the spay-neuter, trap banks, any kind of extra assistance, food and shelter giveaways contingent upon people having taken this training. And you either provide cards or certificates 
or share an Excel spreadsheet with listed names with the other service providers in your community. And again, if everybody buys into the system, that's when it works its best. Cats of the Wild is the podcast for cat lovers who want to make a difference. Listen to inspiring and engaging stories of wild cat conservation and learning how you can help protect cats all over the world. Search for Cats of the Wild in your favorite podcast app now. Do you want to make things easier on yourself and the others in your organization? Our friends at Dubert have teamed up with the Dallas Pets Alive and Spay-Neuter Network teams, and together they have created the Companion Case Management Module. It allows you to be more proactive with all your organization's needs, create cases for your clients, and organize them by type. Whether it is a rehoming situation, a pet parent needing food or medical assistance, or simply spay and neuter inquiries, CCM can help you manage all of them right from the Dubert system. Plus, a huge bonus, it allows you to connect with those clients right from the case so there is no need to open up new windows for emails or pull out your phone for text messages. Check it out and learn more at www.dubert.com to get started today. Ever wanted to quickly connect, collaborate, or problem solve with others in the animal welfare field who are, you know, real people? Look no further than Maddie's Pet Forum. Maddie's Pet Forum brings people of animal welfare together with the common goal to keep more people and pets together. We share ideas, expertise, offer each other support, resources, and more. Visit forum.maddiespetforum.org slash cats. Maddie's Pet Forum. Come for an answer. Stay for the community. So one of the great things that's come up in the last couple of years, one of the silver linings of the pandemic was that we moved all our workshops online in partnership with the Community Cats podcast, and they became quite popular. So they're now available at least once a month, sometimes twice, as you can see here. And you will do the training for you. Uh, you can ju just have people attend and we will issue certificates to them. You know, there are advantages to doing live trainings, but there are also advantages to taking that off your plate. So either way, up to you, but this is a resource that's available. And here's the next couple of dates coming up, March 4th and, and then Tuesday, March 7th. And March 7th will be our first workshop that is approved for continuing education credit for the National Animal Control Association. So congratulations to everybody for that, Community Cats Podcast. But do keep that in mind that we are here as a resource for training for your program if you need it. You can also do in-field training. So there are going to be definitely going to be communities like in New York City, there's 8 million people. So when we were doing live workshops, you know, there were always uh, 20, 25, 30 people who would uh, show up because we were drawing from such a large pool. Now, if you're working in a rural area or a small town or something like that, you should try. Like we did a workshop in a city that had population maybe 20 to 30,000 people and nobody showed up. So obviously not a very effective approach. So we switched to doing in-field training in that community. And that's the same idea, but the training takes place. We bring the traps to them. We show them how to use them, maybe a little bit about how to care for the cats in the traps, uh, and then they take it from there. So it's more limited, but it gets the job done. And you have to be adaptable to your community and use an approach that's going to work for you. So we talked about this network of services that people are gaining access to through their certification, and I want to go into that in a little more detail. So we're talking about three basic areas. There's field work, which is going to include traps and transport, expert assistance, holding space. There's the veterinary side to things, uh, surgeries, possibly extra veterinary care. And then there's kind of keeping the community going after the actual TNR, the caretaker network. And that includes food giveaways, and providing shelter, and creating online networking. So we'll go into these in more detail, but I just want you to see what the overall picture looks like. So trap banks are super important for grassroots mobilization because, again, a lot of people are not looking to become animal welfare professionals or rescuers. They just want to get the five cats in the backyard fixed, and they're not going to go out and spend $500 on traps in order to do it. So you as a program have to provide that. You have to make the equipment available for them to borrow. So typically, you want traps, and we go into this in a lot more detail, what kind of traps in our um, certification workshop. But the basic 
requirements are they're 30 to 36 inches in length. They have a rear sliding door. Uh, you want to have trap dividers in your equipment inventory. Make sure they're made by either Tomahawk or True Catch. These are not needed for taking care of the cats while the, after they're trapped and being housed in their traps. How you do that, again, is part of the certification workshop. You also want drop traps for those cats that just won't go in. So those are the basic. And you may have other stuff like feral cat dens, cages, sheets, and all the other stuff. But this would be the basic that uh, minimum that you would need. I will mention with traps, like you'll notice those of you who are familiar with different traps, these are pretty much all uh, tomahawk traps, spring-loaded traps. We talk a lot about in the workshop about gravity traps that close not on a spring, but on their own weight. They're quieter and a little bit safer and things like that. When you're dealing with the public, you have to make sure the traps are very easy to use. And spring-loaded traps are real simple, right? You just pull the trigger forward and rest the front door on it, and that's the end of it. We have designed a new gravity trap with Tomahawk that we think is really easy. It's the GT606 model. If you want to go look at livetrap.com. The True Catch model, um, that's a great trap, but we discouraged that for trap banks unless people are really well trained because they're kind of easy to screw up and the way you set them is, is our experience. So rule of thumb for a trap bank would be to have double the number of, of whatever your spay neuter slots are. So if you're working with a clinic that can do 20 free-roaming cats a week, you want to have 40 traps. That's because you want people to be able to go out and start trapping for the next round while the first round of cats are still in the traps. You don't want to have to wait until all the cats are released before the traps become free because that, that can kind of pile up and slow down your system. Another tip is that you want to do pickup and drop-off at designated times. So like in New York City and Brooklyn, uh, typically uh, 10 a.m. to noon is when people can come to our trap bank and drop off traps or pick them up. If you do it by appointment, you're going to find yourself spending a lot more time manning the trap bank and it gets pretty frustrating when people are late or they don't show up or things like that. We found that if you create a window and tell people this is it, and then maybe occasionally make an exception that that's much, much more time efficient. If you're looking for sample trap bank procedures or contracts, uh, shoot us an email, info at neighborhoodcats.org, and we'll be happy to share. So trapping support, we have a program in New York City, and again, it's limited to people who are TNR certified that we call TNR coaches. And we encourage people when possible, it's a little more difficult these days with the spay neuter shortage, but when possible, to try to trap the whole colony at one time, even if they're just trapping one or two cats. After the workshop, it can be kind of intimidating to then actually be out there by yourself trying to do this. So if people want, we will provide a volunteer to assist them on the first day. And that's usually the most important day. And then after they've had a little hands-on work under the guidance of somebody experienced, it's not rocket science. They figure out how to do it and are much more comfortable uh, doing it themselves. So that's one kind of program you have. Also, being able to provide advice while somebody's in the course of trapping so they can call you up, shoot you an email, ask you you know, a question, that's always helpful. And then having a volunteer network where as people become experienced, maybe they fix their colony and they don't want to do any, they don't have any more to do themselves, but they might be happy to help somebody else who's starting out. So you create that kind of support. A holding space, if you're doing mass trapping and you're trying to catch all the cats at once in a colony, you're going to need a place to hold that. You're going to have to start trapping at least a couple of days, usually a couple of days, only three days before surgery if it's um, a really large, you know, like 30, 40 cat colony. But if you're talking colonies of 20 or under, you know, two days is usually plenty. But you need to hold them somewhere before the surgery date, and then you need to keep them for a day or two afterwards to recover. So that's what we call a holding space. And the one you're looking at here is from the Maui Humane Society. You can see the traps are up on tables. Again, the cats are in the traps. The traps are serving as cages. That's why they need to be a certain size. But any space that's warm, dry, and secure, meaning protected from the weather, has to be at least 65 degrees Fahrenheit when they come out of surgery for their health. And it needs to be secure so that other animals, other people not associated with the project can't get to it. So we've used garages, basements, empty warehouses, you name it. But depending on where you live, holding space may be a real obstacle. So in New York City, where a lot of people live vertically in apartment buildings, 
they don't have holding space, or maybe they can hold one or two cats in their bathroom. So by making that available, so we don't have, Neighborhood Cats doesn't have our own holding space that we let people use, but we have developed volunteers who have spaces and for a really a nominal amount, will hire themselves out or volunteer themselves out to other projects to provide holding space. So that's another, again, we're going to talk about caretaker networks and people helping each other fill in the gaps that they personally are experiencing. And holding space can be one of them. If you do have a central location that you can use for certain projects that will allow some people to do TNR who might not be able to do it otherwise. Transport is another issue that you can help overcome as a program. You're going to need to pick up and drop off traps, transport the cats to and from the clinic, uh, to and from the colony space, to the holding space. And there's a program, I'm not sure if they still do it in New York City, the uh, Bidaweath through the New York City Feral Cat Initiative have been offering transport for people to get traps and to bring the cats back and forth from clinics. And that is really helpful, again, if you're in a city and a lot of people have cars or they're small cars or whatever it might be. So this is another service to think about uh, offering to support your grassroots. So spay-neuter, that is, of course, the linchpin of having a TNR program. And here's some of the things to think about if you're uh, running a clinic or working with one of them. These are some of the kind of principles that we've learned over time, which is the uh, first one is probably pretty obvious, but the lower the cost, the closer you get to free the higher the amount of participation you're going to have in your grassroots TNR program. It's just a direct relationship. That doesn't mean that it has to be free. It means you get it as low as you can. So for a long time in New York City, TNR uh, surgeries have been free, offered by the ASPCA. They still are, but due to the veterinary shortage, there are not as many slots anymore. And Neighborhood Cats is now working with some clinics and veterinarians where it's over $100 each. But that's still better than the 400 that the private veterinarian would charge. So it, it reduces the amount of participation, but we do the best we can and you just move forward. But keep that in mind if you're thinking like, well, should we charge $40? We might be able to get away with 20 20 is going to get you more people and more cats. Schedule your TNR appointment. This is a big mistake that a lot of clinics make is they put limits on the number of cats that a caretaker can bring in, or they do that what I call that fair allocation where they divide them up. You want to schedule by the colony whenever possible so that people are getting all the cats fixed at once and not leaving low sterilization rates throughout your community, but train people and then make it possible for them to get all the cats in their group TNR at the same time. It's going to be a much more effective program overall. So that is a little more of a challenge for your clinic, but that's why, as I mentioned, the ASBCA started requiring training. All TNR rate, whatever rate you're charging for TNR is usually a lower rate than for pets. You must require that those cats are ear-tipped. It will significantly cut down. It won't eliminate it, but it will cut down on the number of people who are like, well, I don't mind if my pet cat is fixed because I'd rather pay less money. That It will dramatically reduce that happening. One cat per trap, no carriers, no two cats in a trap, one cat per trap, always covered. You as a TNR program and as somebody who is experienced with feral cats, be aware that you may be the one who has to train the veterinary staff how to handle them. A lot of veterinarians have no experience dealing with a feral cat, which we found out the hard way in the beginning in New York City when we had veterinarians trying to transfer the cats out of their traps and into steel cages, and then the cats would get to the ceiling. So we had to teach them to leave the cats in the traps and how to take care of them in there. Towards that goal, if you're working with a clinic that's new with this, get them a set of trap dividers. Just donate that to them and then do a quick demonstration. So five minutes of a demonstration may make all the difference in the world in terms of staff safety and cat protection as well. So what about the veterinary staff shortage? What we're doing now, as I mentioned, in New York City, there's definitely the demand for surgery is just way, way outpacing what's available. So we're experimenting with some programs where you have one that is uh, supported by Community Cats Podcast called Ask Your Vet, and we're subsidizing private veterinarian. So we're not going in and saying, hey, private veterinarian who's overworked and has far more clientele, we want you to do- donate some of your time and cut your costs for us, because rightly or wrongly, that's not a successful approach. Is There are some veterinarians who will do this, but most of them will not. So we're trying to ask for a discount, but whatever they end up offering our caretakers neighborhood cats will subsidize as much of it as we can. So 
maybe we can make a $300 surgery, $150 surgery for the caretaker through our subsidies or things like that. It's kind of a case-by-case basis, experimental program. We're still finding our way with it, but that's one way we're trying to address this. Another thing we're doing is there are what we call grassroots clinics, which are just really dedicated animal welfare people who have gathered together the equipment and found a space and found a veterinarian or two who will donate a day or two a month. And they're doing these small 20-cat, 30-cat clinics one or two times a month. So we're actively supporting those clinics to get as many surgeries as we can. Another approach that we're working on is training existing veterinarians on high-volume techniques. In our experience, this is one of the most promising ways to alleviate the veterinary shortage. We've run a scholarship program for high-volume training at Neighborhood Cats for many years and have found that there are a lot of veterinarians who would like to learn high-volume techniques, but they don't have access to the training. And of course, there's a structural issue in terms of getting more veterinarians into the system, but that's years and years away from happening. And it's a lot faster if you can just take an existing vet and get them to double their volume in the same amount of time. That's like having a second vet. So that's another thing we're working on. And then also the shortage we're emphasizing to our community that as surgery slots are rare, rarer, targeting becomes even more important and using the surgeries we have in the most efficient way to get the most impact from them. So we are actively supporting people who and groups who are doing targeted projects who are focusing on like one, we're working on one neighborhood in Staten Island, for example. These are all things that are not going to overnight solve the problem, but you do the best you can. And and I'll go back to that saying, which is that principle that, you know, limited availability of surgeries is definitely going to have a huge impact on the pace of your progress. Obviously, the more surgeries you have available, the faster you can move, but it doesn't have to determine whether there's any progress at all. Because I'm just going to go back to when we started in New York City and there was nothing. There was less than what there is today. And still, we found a vet. We fixed a cat or two. We didn't work quickly, but we worked effectively. Times will change and there will be more supply. And in the meantime, you do what you can. And I think that's my overall motto for doing TNR is if you're a perfectionist and you need everything done as well as it possibly can be at all times, TNR is probably not the field for you because there's always compromises, there's always difficulties, there's always challenges, there's always situations you don't have the resources for or you don't anticipate, but you don't walk away from it, you do the best that you can. Caretaker network, this is really as you're maturing as a grassroots program and you're, you've gotten members of the public involved, then you want to start to create ways that people can network with each other and help each other, and they may never even come into contact with your program, but they still get the TNR done. And there's a number of ways to do this. This is a great example. I think it's the Maui Cat Coalition. It's a Facebook group, and it's got over 2,000 members of it, and they're all focused on free-roaming cats on the island of Maui, where Susie and I are now. And yeah, they help each other a lot, and they share resources, and they I go in there sometimes to help push helpful legislation, things like that. So that is a really good forum. You should always be getting everybody's email addresses and contact information. When we have an announcement to make about new resources or somebody needs a feeder for a few days or there's a lost cat, whatever it might be, we at Neighborhood Cats, we shoot out an email to about 6,000 caretakers around the city and problems get solved that way. And the system, you know, again, keeps uh, moving forward. Food is a big one for maintaining your caretaker network whenever you can find a pet store with a basement full of just recently expired food or a company that's willing to make a large donation, do holiday food drives, develop a caretaker need fund. So, you know, sometimes somebody becomes unemployed, we'll buy them a month or two of food. This keeps the network alive and thriving. So everybody needs money for food and doesn't mean you can't pay for everybody and all their food, but if you're there now and then, or when people are really at their neediest, it's a huge uh, support service. And then finally, shelters and straw giveaways. So if you're in a cold climate, what we do at Neighborhood Cats is we are in touch with somebody who manufactures winter shelters out of large styrofoam boxes, and we'll buy them in mass and then in turn sell them to caretakers at, at a very low cost, at whatever our cost was. We don't make, in fact, we lose money off it, but 
So we'll give away, I think this last year we gave away, or not gave away, I'm say sold at cost about seven or 800 of these shelters that each house four or five cats. And then straw giveaways because people have shelters, but then they need fresh straw, getting a bale of hay. I mean, not a bale, sorry, don't use hay. Hay is terrible uh, for shelters. A bale of straw, you do that as a program and then give it out in bags. People will really appreciate that too. And with that, Stacey, I think I'll hand it over to you for questions. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much. Excellent. Great job. Very interesting presentation. I know you touched upon this, you know, which is sort of working with the government municipalities to do TNR sort of close to home. Is that what your recommendation is to how to get the parks and rec or any government entity? I mean, I know it's like it's like pick your department. I could probably take in a box like one straw and I'd be like Board of Health agriculture, you know, police, I, you can kind of go through a rotation as to where the cat issues fall, the rules and regulations. But how do you get your public officials to support TNR? Maybe it is show by example. Is that the angle that you're taking? Well, as a general rule, yeah. I mean, if you can go to them with some demonstrable success, again, that's going to be a lot more persuasive than the theory. Right. So you could go to them with the theory, which is, well, if they're all spayed and neutered, then they won't reproduce and you'll have fewer complaints and the cats will go down over time. And, you know, hopefully they'll be open to that. But if you go to them and say, and we did this in this entire zip code or in this entire neighborhood, and here's the data to show it, that's much more persuasive. But I would say, so now you're moving beyond your model neighborhood. You've created that foundation of success and now you're trying to get the government on your side, and you're not so much targeting areas as you are targeting agencies, right? In the beginning, uh, if you're trying to choose among the different agencies, choose the ones who want to work with you, because that's what happened with us. Uh, the, the parks in New York City, there's the Parks Department, which oversees everything, but each individual park has its own manager. And some of the parks have collaborations with privately funded conservancies. And in the case of Riverside Park, it was the conservancy that was really open to trying this. And they were able to go to the Parks Department and bring them on board. And so that's why we started there. And then after that, it became a matter of different agencies just learning about them. And, and then, you know, we really didn't have that much problem at that point persuading them because we had concrete examples. And a lot of times they had already tried to remove the cats. And it hadn't worked, so they didn't feel like they had anything to lose. But when you first start working with government agencies, go work with the ones that want to work with you. And then, again, it's one success builds on another. So then when you go to the police department, you can say, we work with the parks department. here, And we were always getting testimonial letters. And here's a letter they wrote about how great the collaboration was. And so the more you can demonstrate what you've done, the faster the doors will open. Is that more impactful working on that local level versus, um, I know the return to field webinar, you had that slide with like the six municipalities and they had return to field programs and TNR programs and showing the effectiveness of it over a year's time. Is it better to stay local or can you pull in information from other parts of the country? It's always better to stay local because it's useful to bring in national data and other examples of success, but people are people and they always think that where they are, it's different, right? Like, yeah, that worked in San Francisco, but this is South Orange, New Jersey, and it's not going to work here. And they might not have any particular logical reason to distinct. Like, like when we moved to Hawaii, you know, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, you, you know, you had a lot of success in New York City, but this is Hawaii. It's completely different. And it's not going to work. And it's exactly the same when it comes to the cats. You know, <laughs> I mean, the landscape is different. The culture is different. But cats are cats and they need to eat and they have their territory and they reproduce. But people are very attuned to their jurisdiction is, is somehow different. So local success is going to get you a lot farther than examples from some other part of the country. Oh, this is a good question, actually. What is meant by rabies exposure when you're talking about, you know, reaction to a rabies exposure? This person saying someone received a bite from a stray that ran away, so it was presumed it was a rabies exposure. Or are you talking about actual cases of rabies in a specific area or even in with wildlife? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question because that is a term of art that I didn't realize I was using. So a rabies exposure is distinguished from a, an actual case of rabies. Let me give you an example. In this county that we worked with, uh, mama cat had a litter of kittens. Somebody brought the litter of kittens to a veterinarian, like five. The clinic took care of them and then adopted them out. Well, it turned out all five kittens had rabies. So a total of 33 different people had handled the kittens and possibly come into contact with their saliva or been scratched or in some way exposed to them while they were contagious. So you don't wait around with rabies to see whether or not somebody actually caught it. You treat it right away prophylactically. And that's what a rabies exposure is. So the county didn't show any new cases of rabies from cats, but they showed 33 exposures that had to be treated at a cost of $3,000 each. So that's why public health departments care about exposures, not so much cases. Because you won't get cases if you have a good health department, but the health department doesn't want to blow its budget on one litter of kids. Right. You know, I know the focus of this presentation is on mobilizing the community for TNR, but we get bogged down so many times with regards to injured cats, cats that need extra help. You know, how do we mobilize the community to help the cats that need that kind of extra assistance? That's a really tough part in the beginning because, you know, you have very limited resources and and that includes your time and your funds. You can't do everything. You have to prioritize. We, again, learned that the hard way. You know, we found socialized and found homes for six or seven feral kittens and the vet bills and the amount of time it took and the effort was all spent not TNRing cats. So it's important to understand the concept of what in economics is called opportunity costs. And that is when you're doing one thing, you've lost the opportunity to do something else. So if you've only got $2,000 of funds and you spend it all on one injured cat, well, maybe that's 50 cats that didn't get fixed. So you have to really clearly define what you're able to do and what you're not able to do and what your priorities are. And in the end, I think we dealt with that by, you know, if it was our colony, like that first model colony, and the cat needed extra veterinary care, we got the cat extra veterinary care because it was our colony. But when we were working with someone else, we were there to assist them. We were there to support the caretaker. We would give them ideas about how to raise money. We would give them references for vets to talk to, but we did not take on the responsibility of their colony care because it would have so severely limited what we can do. So I think defining your role and your circle of responsibility and sticking to that is really essential. So we're not an adoption group. And the beauty of this is, I mean, it may sound a little harsh to people. That's how we were when we started. Fast forward to today, we're dealing with injured cats all the time because now we have a very large network and a cat comes in and needs a $1,200 dental and we can do a fundraiser and raise that money very quickly because we built ourselves up to being able to do that. If we had started doing that at the beginning, we never would have gotten to the, the kind of capacity we have to do that. So we do have some urban versus rural conversations as it revolves around spay-neuter capacity. And so I'd like to keep it on the spay-neuter capacity side of things, because I think urban and rural are both challenged with those issues. If you dropped down into a new community, sort of like you were talking about with the training, and you needed to create more spay-neuter capacity, what would be the low-hanging fruit for you? Well, first thing I would look for is any kind of nonprofit clinic. You know, is there a shelter? Is there a high-volume clinic, even if they're an hour drive away? What's the closest nonprofit? Then my next thing I would probably talk to, are there any rescue groups in this area? Are there any small or large or medium-sized organizations that are involved in animal welfare? Because they'll have already figured out where to get spay-neuter from. And then the next tier would be talking to veterinarians in the area. I think sometimes people go into that conversation with a sense of entitlement, like you should be doing this. you know. And even if you're right, it's really harmful to project that. So we, for example, in one city we worked in, there was a local veterinarian who offered to do two cats a week. We had hundreds, if not thousands of cats we needed to fix. But we just gratefully and appreciatively accepted that. And he started working with us and he saw that we paid our bills on time and we showed up on time and we did what we said we were going to do. And we supported him if there were difficult choices and things. And then he opened it up 
And then it became 10 cats, 15, 20 cats a week. So you develop relationships. Again, I talked about that before by accepting what other agencies and people are willing and comfortable to offer. That's where you start and then you build. I thought many years ago, I'm not a veterinarian, so I can't be involved with starting a spay-neuter clinic, which is so wrong, right? You can. I mean, I did. We started the Catmobile and we had um, spay-neuter clinics for feral cats on Sunday. So you can initiate that process in exploring a different, a spay-neuter model to bring to the community also. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and that's what I meant by supporting, like we support grassroots clinics where we have some really dedicated people and, and they're able to pull the equipment together. And sometimes veterinarians are very attracted to the idea of going to another location once or twice a month and donating their time or being, you know, even uh, paid and just doing nothing but spay neutering cats outside of their normal practice. So if you create that kind of a place for them, you can get a certain number of cats fixed. And yeah, you guys, you guys did that for years. You would have these 100, 200 cat weekend clinics and that sustained the community for, for a number of years. So yeah, that's that's definitely a, a great option too. Right, right. So I think that people, you know, they can make a difference. It's not just falling within the veterinary community. You can grow capacity. Yeah. You do all the work and you bring them in just to do the cutting, then that's using the veterinarian for what they're supposed to be used for. Yeah. Hey, if there's anybody in New York City and that's your passion, <laughs> we're here. We want to support you. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think, and a five-star review really helps others find the show. You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats. Wow.